Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I'm your host, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, today is Sunday, May uh, the 28th, uh, 2023, and we are broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And later on in our program, uh, we'll be coming up uh, with our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the security situation in the Republic of Sudan as fighting continues between the two military structures. The African Development Bank says that investment prospects remain favorable uh, for the continent. The African continental free trade area uh, is working to alleviate the food deficits uh, in the region. And uh, the Egyptian government has announced the discoveries of artifacts uh, from the old kingdom period of history. In the second and third hours, we continue our focus on the 60th anniversary of the formation of the Organization of African Unity the predecessor to the African Union. Finally, we review the recent state visit by Eritrean President Isaiah Afwerki uh, to the People's uh, Republic of China. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take our musical interlude uh, with the music of Bozi Boziana and the Anti-Shock Orchestra. Let's listen in.
amwana 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 tujinaka amwana 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 awiza amwana 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 tujinaka Tocali mi 
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and we're here on this Sunday, and uh, today is uh, May uh, 28th, uh, 2023, and uh, this is uh, African Liberation Day weekend, and uh, there have been uh, events commemorating the 60th anniversary of the formation of uh, the Organization of African Unity. Uh, Those events have been taking place uh, all across the world, in Africa as well as in the diaspora. And uh, right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment of our program. And our lead story, of course, uh, deals uh, with the current situation in the Republic of Sudan. We're fighting uh, over the last six weeks uh, between uh, the two leading military structures of the country has caused much distress. Majak D. Agat, former deputy chief of the National Intelligence and Security Services of Sudan, has raised concerns that Sudan could become a safe haven for various isolated zones of conflict in the region if immediate action is not taken to address the escalating situation. Warned that the collapse of Sudan into anarchy could connect turmoil-ridden areas from Gaza to Yemen, Somalia, Libya, and across the Sahel and sub-Saharan African countries, ultimately affecting regional and international security. The uh, outbreak of fighting on April 15th uh, between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces has aggravated the situation. The conflict emerged from disagreements over security reforms, particularly the integration of the rapid support forces into the government armed forces. General Abdel Fattah El-Bahan and General Mohammed Hamdan Delgallo, known as Hameti, who were once allies, orchestrated a coup together in October of 2021. They derailed uh, a very fragile transition to civilian rule that had been initiated Uh, by uh, popular demonstrations and strikes throughout the country beginning uh, in late uh, 2018. And experts emphasize the geostrategic significance of Sudan, uh, which makes its stability crucial for the international community. The country is situated at the intersection of the West Asia region and the Africa region. Sudan uh, has a coastline of 853 kilometers, along the Red Sea, a major route for global trade. Furthermore, Sudan's location at the confluence of the Blue Nile and White Nile rivers impacts Egypt's water security. The country also possesses significant gold mines and shares borders with neighboring states experiencing internal strife and fragility. And uh, you can read more on the current situation uh, in uh, the Republic of Sudan by logging on to the Pan-African Newswire. African economies have demonstrated resilience and strong rebounds uh, necessary for the increased investment into the world's second largest continent, the African Development Bank has observed. According to the bank, despite the confluence of multiple shocks, uh, growth across all five African regions was positive in 2022 uh, with an outlook for 2023 and 2024 projected to be stable. Uh, Such recovery, the bank said, 
had positioned the continent for investment into many of its untapped areas of investment for mutual benefit, especially climate change and green growth. Africa holds immense investment potential across agriculture, energy, and ICT. Let's come together to harness the huge opportunities in Africa to drive the collective goal of saving the planet. Professor Kevin Chika Rama, Chief Economist and Vice President of Economic Governance and Knowledge Management at the African Development Bank. You're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. In other news, uh, the African Continental Free Trade Area Secretariat will prioritize intra-regional agricultural trade to unlock the region's agricultural potential and achieve regional food security. Wamkele Mene, the Secretary General of the Secretariat, said uh, just three days ago. Mene made the vow in his opening remarks at the 7th African Leadership Forum in the Ghanaian capital of Accra, stressing the need to reverse the continent's food import bill by utilizing its abundant arable land to become self-sufficient in food production. The Africa Continental Free Trade Area chief lamented that despite Africa's vast potential for food production, the continent remains a net food importer with demand for commodities such as cereals, meat, dairy products, fats, oils, and sugar exceeding domestic supply. Many African countries import food from outside the continent when there is surplus food available for trade in some neighboring African countries. And intra-African agricultural trade remains below 20% compared to more than 60% for Europe and Asia, Mene said. He said uh, continental and regional trade integration would play a critical role in reversing this trend and help to improve food security and sustainability on the continent, urging African leaders to accelerate measures on dismantling barriers that inhibit intra-African trade in agricultural produce and products, increasing investment in agro-processing and climate-resilient agriculture. And finally, in the North African state of Egypt, archaeologists in that country have announced new discoveries at the Saqqara necropolis south of Cairo. The new discoveries include two human and animal embalming workshops, as well as the tombs of two priests. We found two big workshops, one for human and then used in mummifying animals, while the second workshop is for humans only. We found also beads, mummification tools, and materials. During the excavation, we also found a tomb that belonged uh, to the Ne Hasut Ba, a priest who served in the fifth dynasty of the Old Kingdom 4,500 years ago, announced uh, Mustafa Waziri, head of Egypt's Supreme Council of Antiquities. Recently, Egypt has unveiled a string of major archaeological discoveries. Discoveries have been a key component of Egypt's attempt to revive its vital tourism industry. This is the first time we discovered embalming workshops in Saqqara associated uh, with temples. All the previous embalming workshops were related to Apis, the old Egyptian god of fertility and death, and Memphis, uh, part of the Giza government now, that means it is an important discovery to have found embalming workshops here in Saqqara, said Mohammed Youssef, director of the Saqqara Archaeological Site. And uh, with that, we're going to conclude the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal.
In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in numerous newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to uh, the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, all you need to do is go to our website, and uh, that is at panafricannews.blogspot.com. African News at blogspot.com. And uh, if you'd like to have access uh, to today's Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, May the 28th, uh, 2023, uh, just go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network. And that is at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of our program for this week.
the legendary uh, Tina Turner uh, with the track entitled We Don't Need Another Hero. And uh, Tina Turner uh, made her transition uh, just uh, several days ago at the age of 83. And uh, next month, uh, during our Black Music Month series, uh, we're going to pay tribute to uh, Tina Turner. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday, uh, May the 28th, 2023. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit, Michigan. And uh, just uh, several days ago, represented the 60th anniversary on May 25th of the formation of the Organization of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union, which was formed in 2002. And uh, one of the leading figures in the African liberation movement, both practically and theoretically, was Amilcar Cabral, uh, who was from the Cape Verde Islands off the coast of West Africa. Uh, he was an engineer uh, by training, and he was a founder of the African Party for the Independence of Guinea and Cape Verde. And uh, we're going to listen to a lecture and discussion on the lifetimes and contributions of Amilcar Cabral here in honor of African Liberation Day 2023. I want to thank you all for joining us this afternoon. I think we've got a full house already, which is great to see. So it's... um, Let me introduce myself. My name is Krista Johnson, and I'm the director of the Center for African Studies at Howard University, and it's a pleasure to welcome you all this afternoon. Um, We have a a special uh, guest this afternoon, Professor Peter Mendy from uh, Rhode Island College in Providence, Rhode Island. I'm going to introduce him in a minute. He's going to be speaking on his uh, most recent book, which is titled Amilcar Cabral, A Nationalist and Pan-Africanist Revolutionary. Professor Mendy is Professor of History and Africana Studies at Rhode Island College in Providence. And he was born, though, and grew up in the Gambia, but has strong roots to Guinea-Bissau and as well to Senegal. So a West African, definitely a a, a Pan-African or West African uh, uh, for sure. Uh, His education was done in the United Kingdom. So his, both his BA, his MA, and his PhD were done in the United Kingdom. His PhD um, he holds in political science and West African studies from the University of Birmingham. His doctoral thesis was Portuguese colonialism in Africa, the tradition of resistance in Guinea-Bissau, 1879 to 1959. He subsequently turns that into a book. Um, and in addition to that, of course, he has his latest, latest book on Emilcar Cabral, but has also um, published numerous publications, including co-authoring a volume on a historical dictionary of the Republic of Guinea-Bissau, and then has co-edited a volume, uh, this is in French, Pluralisme Politique en Guinea-Bissau, une transition encore, encore, (laughs) with his chapter, The Emergence of Political Pluralism in Guinea-Bissau. Dr. Mendy, has lived in Guinea-Bissau for uh, for over seven years and was uh, both director and then deputy director, well, deputy director and then director of um, the leading social science research institutes in Guinea-Bissau. Um, he witnessed, at that time, he witnessed the country's transition from a one-party state to multi-party 
dispensation, economic liberalization, and uh, implementation also of stringent structural adjustment programs. So he has firsthand, uh, obviously, on-the-ground experience and knowledge in uh, Guinea-Bissau. So his, his talk today will actually be, of course, on his book, but really also about the, 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 the current um, uh, uh, politics and, 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 you know, and societal um, uh, circumstances and conditions in, in Guinea-Bissau, which will be an interesting conversation in and of itself. Um, Professor Mendy has been teaching at Rhodes, uh, Rhode Island College since 2000, and his research fields are broad. They include civil-military relations in contemporary Africa, the military and politics in Guinea-Bissau, democratization processes in Lusophone Africa, elections and electoral processes and Lusophone, in, in Lusophone Africa, and war and peace transitions in Lusophone Africa. So we're really delighted to have uh, uh, Professor Mendy come and, and speak with us here at the center. This was actually a talk that was scheduled for last spring, but because and it was supposed to be in person, but because of COVID, we we've had to now do it in this virtual format. So I'm going to um, first hand over the the floor to Professor Mindy and and give him an opportunity to to speak for about 30 minutes. We also then I will come back and introduce our um, discussant for the for the afternoon, who is our master. Mr. Rene Odanga. So I, I, will, I will introduce him in, in a little bit. But let me please uh, turn it over to Professor Mende to, to give his, his talk now. Thank you very much. Um, thank you very much, uh, Professor Johnson, uh, for that warm introduction and for kindly renewing the invitation by former director, Professor Mbai Cham, who invited me early this year to make an in-person presentation, as you just mentioned, but uh, COVID-19 decided to be a malicious spoiler. Um, I just want to acknowledge the family of Amilka Cabral. I know some of them um, uh, have joined or said will be joining. And to the distinguished participants, ladies and gentlemen, um, I send my uh, warmest greetings and thank you for joining this virtual uh, presentation. I would also like to thank uh, the discussant in advance, irrespective of his uh, perspectives. I am honored to remotely present uh, my book, uh, Amilcar Cabral, A Nationalist and Pan-Africanist Revolutionary. But I would like to start uh, with a quick PowerPoint presentation to provide a visual overview. Now, I'm going to try and see if I can upload it from here. Uh, oh, and we can. Uh, so I don't know how it's showing on your end. Is it... Um, is it working at your end? No, it is not no. yet. Oh. Did you hit the share screen button? Okay, let me try again then. I did. Uh, I thought I did. So once you hit the share screen button, okay. uh, you need to select which item to share. Oh. So then you have to double click on that item. Let me just try it again. How there we go. Now? Okay. Yeah, okay. that's now we can see it. Okay. So let's get this PowerPoint going. 
Um, okay, so that's just the title. So I'll, this is the uh, historical figure that the book is about. Amilcar Cabral was born in the in Guinea-Bissau in the interior, the eastern part of the country in a town called Bafata in Guinea-Bissau. Guinea-Bissau, as you can see from the map, is waged between Senegal to the north and the Republic of Guinea to the east and to the south and the Atlantic Ocean um, to the west. It is uh, a country with an archipelago of 88 islands uh, here. And this was actually the house where Cabral was born on uh, 24th uh, September, on 12 September, I'm sorry, 12 September, 1924. Um, his parents, uh, Cape Verde, were Cape Verdeans. The father was juvenile Antonio Lopes the, uh, the, the Costa Cabral, and the mother was Eva Pinal Eva Evera. Uh, these are images uh, of them and the young Amilcar Cabral. Um, Cabral uh, was born, the, the parents came from uh, the Cape Verde Islands. Uh, the Cape Verde Islands, uh, 10 islands, an archipelago of 10 islands of the coast of Senegal, about 400 miles from Senegal and 900 miles northwest from Bissau. This is the house uh, that the father built, and Amelka Cabral spent a brief time here when he left Guinea-Bissau at age eight with his father to uh, Cape Verde. Okay, um, let me stop there, and I might have to come back. Well, well let me just continue because what I was planning. So, um, Amilcar Cabral was very much uh, inspired by the tradition of resistance in both these two settings. His land of birth, Portuguese Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, but also his land of ancestry, Cape Verde. And he famously articulated this by saying the resistance of the people of Guinea-Bissau, the people of Guinea and Cabo Verde has never ceased to manifest itself in revolt, passive resistance, mass emigration to neighboring countries, and total refusal to pay the taxes of domination. Our struggle is carrying on from there. Um, Amilcar Cabral was uh, understood the nature of colonial education, which he expressed as, he said, all, all Portuguese uh, education disparages the African, his culture, and his civilization. African languages are forbidden in schools. The white man is always presented as a superior being and the African as an inferior. The colonial conquistadors are shown as saints and heroes. As soon as African children enter elementary school, they develop an inferiority complex. 
So that um, function of colonial education was uh, understood by Cabral. And um, the Cabral was also made uh, uh, a distinction uh, and clearly identified the uh, enemy in this struggle for liberation. He famously said, said, our people make a distinction between the fascist colonial uh, government and the people of Portugal. They are not fighting against the Portuguese people. And um, Amilca Cabral uh, was very, uh, was a very energetic, multitasking um, uh, uh, individual. He actually uh, conducted the war, war. He was out in the front, as well as um, traveling the world, um, mobilizing, you know, uh, world opinion, uh, securing uh, both political, material, and diplomatic support. Here we see uh, images of him in the field with his soldiers. Cabral was very much uh, involved in uh, and concerned about the situation of women. Women took an active part in the liberation struggle. They were not just uh, carriers of you know weapons. They did that too, but uh, much more important, they were frontline soldiers as well. So here you see uh, a picture with, of him with some uh, women fighters. Um, Cabral conducted the war with incredible honesty. He said, hide nothing from the masses of our people. He tells his fighters and his comrades, tell no lies, expose lies wherever they are told, mask no difficulties, mistakes, failures, claim no easy um, uh, victories. And he demonstrated solidarity uh, with what he called every just cause. He said, we in the conference of the nationalist organizations of the Portuguese uh, colonies, which he was the face and the voice of this united front against Portuguese colonialism, he said, we are fiercely in solidarity with every just cause. Uh, in the case of the civil rights movement here, he said, we are with the blacks of North America. We are with them in the streets of Los Angeles. And when they are deprived of all possibility of life, we suffer with them. Um, Amilcar Cabral linked the struggle uh, against Portuguese colonialism um, with the, uh, the struggle of the people of Portugal to end um, their subjugation to the dictatorship. He said, while the fall of fascism in Portugal might not lead to the end of Portuguese colonialism, we are certain that the elimination of Portuguese colonialism will bring about the destruction of Portuguese fascism. 
um, through our liberation struggle, we are making an effective contribution towards the defeat of Portuguese fascism and giving the Portuguese people the best possible proof of our solidarity. Very prophetic because the war in Guinea-Bissau, the war in the colonies, um, would actually end up liberating the Portuguese people, perhaps unprecedented in history, where uh, a people fighting against the colonial oppressors would end up uh, freeing uh, the people of the uh, in the in the metropolis in the in in the colonizing country, particularly if that colonizing country country is a dictatorship. So um, Cabral was able to the war in Guinea-Bissau uh, actually got to a point where the the soldiers themselves war fatigued. Some of them began to sympathize with the um, with the course of the liberation war, and uh, what became the armed forces movement that ended the 48 years of dictatorship in Portugal actually started in uh, in Guinea-Bissau. It was in Guinea-Bissau that soldiers um, got together and uh, decided to uh, end the war. When they returned to Portugal, they were the ones who organized the, the, what, was, what is called the, the, the revolution uh, in, uh, in, uh, in Portugal that ended the war. But here we get a statement um, by the armed forces movement that says, we Portuguese military troops who were sent to a war we did not understand or support have in our hands a unique opportunity to repair the crimes of fascism and colonialism to set up the basis for a new fraternal cooperation between the peoples of Portugal and Guinea. Um, so the war, uh, Guinea-Bissau was critical. The war in Guinea-Bissau actually was more intensive and it was in Guinea-Bissau that Portugal was decisively uh, defeated. So um, it ended with Portugal, with Guinea-Bissau declaring unilateral, uh, unilaterally declaring independence on 24th September 1973, followed by Mozambique on 25th uh, June 1975, in Cape Verde on 5th July 1975, and Santome and Principe 12 July 1975, finally in Angola in, on 11th November 1975. Okay, so um, let me stop there. And um, just wanted to say uh, and continue with the presentation. So um, a lot has been written about America Cabral. So obviously uh, my book on Cabral is not the first publication on this great historical figure. Since the landmark publication of Basil Davidson's book, 
the liberation of Guinea, aspects of an African revolution in 1969, publications in English about Cabral's ideas, accomplishments, and legacy have grown substantially. Some of the critically acclaimed studies in English include Amilcar Cabral, Revolutionary Leadership and People's War by Patrick Chaval in 1983, Amilcar Cabral's Revolutionary Theory and Practice, A Critical Guide in 1991, and Ronald Chilcott's, uh, but that was by Ronald Chilcott, excuse me, and Warriors at 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 Work, How Guinea Was Really Set Free by Mustafa Dada in 1993. Now, my book is a contribution to the Ohio University series on African leaders of the 20th century. The series aims to introduce college students and general readers to the great African leaders of the last century, leaders who demonstrated exemplary leadership qualities in liberating and governing their peoples, leaders whose ideas still resonate um, in the continent today. Now, the biographies, uh, the biographies in the series are meant to be concise, readable, and accessible. There are not revised doctoral theses. Focus on leadership is apt and timely, given the, uh, the um, persistent crisis of leadership in post-independence crisis, uh, Africa a chronic crisis that has devastated and continues to destroy lives and livelihoods in too many African countries. Defining, um, defining the meaning of leader, John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, famously stated, if your actions inspire others to dream more, learn more, do more, and become more, you are a leader. By this definition, the biographic profile sketched out in the pages of my book um, amply qualifies Cabral as an inspirational and motivational leader. Charismatic and visionary, Cabral was a genius at mobilizing and inspiring his fellow compatriots to engage in selfless, high-risk, and life-threatening activities. Cabral was not only a great African leader of the last century, but according to 5,000 readers of the BBC World Histories magazine that came out in February 2020 this year, he is the second greatest, he's considered the second greatest leader of all time. This is after um, Maharaja Ranjit Singh, the 19th century ruler of this Sikh empire. Cabral was voted second from a list of 20 leaders in world history nominated by historians. Professor Hakim Adi of Chichester University in the UK who nominated him. Uh, Leaders including Egyptian Pharaoh Amenhotep III, Roman Catholic Pope Innocent III, African Emperor Mansa Musa of the Mali Empire, European monarchs including Catherine the Great of Russia and Queen Elizabeth I of England, U.S. President Abraham Lincoln, 
and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. One of the most important criteria stipulated for great leader was, quote, someone who exercised power and had a positive impact on humanity. While, um, while 5,000, I'm sorry, while, while the 5,000 BBC uh, magazine readers are not a globally representative sample, the survey result still reflects the significance of Amilcar Cabral as a leader on the world stage. Cabral was an agronomist, a nationalist, a pan-Africanist, and an outspoken internationalist in solidarity with every just cause, as he put it. A prolific writer, his scientific publications including, included, include voluminous studies on agronomy and agriculture, while his political works, mainly in Portuguese, also comprise several English language publications, including Revolution in Guinea and African People's Struggle and Unity and Struggle. A Marxist revolutionary theorist, uh, uh, theorist, Cabral critiqued the concept of class and insisted on, quote, the existence of history before the class struggle to challenge and reject the notion that the colonized are, quote, people without history. An engaged intellectual and revolutionary, Cabral remains a, as significant as his famous contemporaries on the world stage, including Mao Zedong, uh, Franz Fanon, Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, Fidel Castro, and Che Guevara, to whom he has been, in my opinion, simplistically likened and even referred to as the Che Guevara of Africa. Now, while Cabral and Guevara were close ideological uh, comrades, they had different perspectives on revolutionary principles and practices. Fundamentally, Cabral did not believe in the export of revolution, a position he articulated clearly at the 1966 tricontinental tri meeting of fellow revolutionaries in Havana, Cuba, when he declared, I quote, however great the similarity between our cases and how, however identical our enemies, national liberation and social revolution are not exportable commodities. Cabral insisted on contextual specificity. Briefly, this uh, the biography, this biography of Cabral narrates the life of a man born in a Portuguese colonial outpost called Guinea Portuguesa or Portuguese Guinea 96 years ago, who would become the most prominent founding father of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. The book also tells the story of Cabral's active engagement in the anti-colonial struggles against Portugal that secured independence for Angola, Mozambique, and Santome and Principe. The accumulative impacts of the transformative developments generated by Cabral's effective leadership contributed significantly to the collapse of 48 years of brutal fascist dictatorship in Portugal 
called the Estado Novo. The narrative provides critical um, perspective on Cabral's accomplishments and the multiple con uh, contexts in which he lived and the struggles to overcome the enormous um, challenges he faced. In narrating the story of Cabral, I have tried to contextualize the major developments in his life. Chapters one and two examine the two critical settings in which Amilcar Cabral was born and raised. First, the background of ongoing wars of conquest in Portuguese Guinea, where he was born on 12 September 1924 in the town of Bafata. While the Portuguese presence in the territory dates back to the 15th century, effective colonial domination was only achieved in the early years of the 20th century. Nine years before Cabral was born, Portugal finally conquered the mainland of the territory in 1915, but still had another 21 years to subjugate the inhabitants of the adjacent 88 island Bijagos Archipelago. That was 12 years after Cabral was born. Secondly, the uh, post-slavery colonial situation in Cabo Verde. In Cape Verde, the Ten Island Archipelago settled by the Portuguese in the mid-15th century, where they established the first slave plantation society in the tropics, which became the model for the Americas. Slavery was finally abolished in Cape Verde in 1878. Uh, I did something here, didn't I? And um, power, uh, poor in natural resources and plagued by centuries, by, uh, by centuries of periodic droughts, famines, and spectacular deaths, uh, exploitation, and callous neglect by Portugal, the incredibly re resilient people of the archipelago of Cape Verde resist resisted the best way they could with revolts rebellions and migrations, which created the large Kivudian uh, diaspora in Africa, Europe, and the Americas. With the highest literacy rate in Portugal's African empire, 22%, for example, in 1950, compared to 3% in Angola, 2% in, uh, in Mozambique, and 1% in um, Portuguese Guinea, with a seminary built in 1866 and a high, and a high school with large Cape Verdean faculty, but limited employment opportunities, the Portuguese recruited a significant number of educated Cape Verdeans into the colonial service of Guinea-Bissau and to a limited extent in Angola. So it was in search of uh, better employment opportunities that both parents of Amilcar Cabral found themselves in Portuguese Guinea in the early um, years of the 20th century. I discussed Cabral's primary and secondary education in Cape Verde, and as an active high school student, his involvement with a literacy movement called Claridad that um, influenced him to write poems and prose in which he critically commented on the harsh environmental and colonial reality. 
So um, the chapters that follow um, chronologically uh, looks at Cabral's uh, development from um, uh, university in uh, in uh, in Portugal, where he arrived in 1945. Uh, his involvement in the uh, in uh, clandestine clandestine uh, political activity, student political activity, but also uh, with other African students, including Agostinho Neto of um, of Angola, Marcelino de Santos, who died recently of Mozambique. Um, Cabral would uh, become very uh, engaged in political activities. I, I, I delve into his deepening political consciousness and radicalization. And um, in the third chapter, I look at Cabral's return to his country of birth 20 years later in um, Portuguese Guinea. And his uh, uh, work as an agronomist, uh, he studied agronomy in Portugal, but also um, his uh, clandestine uh, work to try to raise political consciousness in Guinea-Bissau by organizing a sport and re, uh, uh, recreation uh, club for young uh, people. So um, the Portuguese would uh, discover his uh, activities and uh, when he is medically evacuated in uh, to Portugal because he had a heavy dose of malaria. He is actually, his uh, uh, employment is terminated, so he does not return. Uh, in chapter five, I, I look at his decision to engage fully in armed liberation struggle. In chapter six, I discuss the launch uh, war of independence in January 1963. In chapter seven, I highlight his active engagement in Pan-African politics and his unfailing demonstration of solidarity with what he calls every just cause in the world, from the Vietnam conflict to the Congo crisis to the civil rights uh, struggles here in the United States. In chapter eight, I discuss the circumstances surrounding his assassination by one of his disgruntled fighters uh, with the deep complicity of the Portuguese. Chapter nine, I discovered, I analyzed the redouble efforts of the Portuguese in the wake of the loss of their, uh, uh, of its charismatic uh, leader to complete the liberation of Portuguese Guinea. And in chapter nine, I look at, uh, in the final chapter, I um, look at the legacy of Cabral uh, as the most prominent founding father of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, his ideas about national liberation beyond flag independence remain pertinent in contemporary Africa. So I think I, um, my time is, uh, I will stop there. Um, and we can pick it up. Uh, uh, later. Thank you. Thank you. That's a good, uh, I guess, pause uh, um, 
point for the time being. Thank you very much, Professor Mendy. So um, we're interested actually in delving a little bit more into the the, the substance and meat of um, of your book, and then of course bringing it up into a bit of a the contemporary significance really of, of Cabral and and understanding I think some of the the contemporary political conditions uh, in Guinea-Bissau. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted though to I guess facilitate some of that and to to get us uh, going there to introduce. Um, our discussant for today, who is Rene Odanga. He will serve as our discussant, and he's a master's student in the Department of African Studies here at Howard University, a second-year master's student, so he's finishing up, hopefully, soon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, his research focuses on East African state history and thematic cultural expressions in African literature. He's received his BA in International Relations from the United States International University, um, Hails from East Africa, but again, has a lot of interest in Amilcar Cabral and um, as, of course, do, you know, most of us. Um, so I'll turn it over to you, Renee, if you can um, perhaps give us your impressions of the of the book and really what stood out for you and then also um, uh, facilitate some uh, some of the Q&A. And then I'll also just a reminder to I'll come back on probably, but just a reminder to the audience, it's best to probably put your questions and answers in the chat. Uh, we're using the chat uh, function for that. If you do have a question that you want to ask, if you can just flag us and then I can come on and actually ask you to then unmute your mic. Thanks, Renee. Over to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. Uh, Dr. Mendy, uh, as I mentioned earlier, it's very nice to meet you and I'm very grateful for the work that you put into the book. Now, I have 10 questions, but I'll only ask three uh, if only for the for the for the purpose of time, um, it is ten questions for for every chapter in the book. But I'll only ask three of them, um, and I'll and, and I'll, I'll I'll delineate them along the 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 duties that you wanted to prove with the book. That one, uh, Amilcar Cabral competently organized and led one of Africa's most consequential and most consequential armed liberation struggle. And so on that, and with the fourth one, that he wrote incisive essays and innovative books that still resonate today, I wanted to ask you, because you mentioned that from the very beginning, I think it is in Chapter 2, that uh, Guinea-Bissau, which was then called Portuguese Guinea, had multiple ethnic groups and peoples who have more in common than the sum, sum total of their differences, the, 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 the large swathing of, um, of ethnic communities in, in, in Guinea-Bissau, they have more in common than the sum total of their differences. Yet the Portuguese imperialists were still able to um, amass these differences and use them to split them, such that we see even later on during the struggle, Amilcar Cabral is still, is still finding challenges uh, surpassing this engineered, um, these engineered um, differences that the Portuguese had been able to play off each community against each other. Now, uh, why was this possible to begin with? And two, uh, if, if you could also speak about that with the, with the differences that were cultivated between Cabo Verdeans and, and people in Guinea-Bissau, and if you could make it com- contemporary as well, because as a student of African studies, I would say Africans have qualitatively less uh, differences than, our, than, than we have in common. We have more in common um, quantitatively than whatever sum total of our differences. Yet this still seems to be a problem that we, we, we face 
in trying to amass pan-Africanist struggle or a united front against underdevelopment and so on. So if you could, uh, uh, how can we, how can pan-Africanists endeavor to um, uh, rise above this? Yes, okay. Um, uh, regarding the, uh, your first question um, has to do with the policy of assimilation which the Portuguese uh, use as a tactic of divide and rule. Uh, the policy of assimilation was applied to Guinea-Bissau, or Portuguese Guinea, Angola, and Mozambique and Kivud was exempted. Um, that uh, was a, a very effective uh, instrument of divide and rule. Um, so the Kivudians, because again of manpower shortage, Portugal is trying to uh, prevail over huge territories in Africa. Angola is uh, 14 times the size of Portugal, uh, and not to speak of uh, Mozambique. All right. So uh, it is, uh, it, is uh, uh, it does not have the manpower. So it uses Cape Verdeans uh, in Guinea-Bissau, and to do that effectively, uh, this policy of divide and rule uh, 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 is, uh, is deployed. And so um, it exaggerates the differences. It gives us the, the, the Cape Verdeans. But we have to be careful. Even though Cape Verdeans were considered civilized and assimilated, okay, um, there are two types of Cape Verdeans that we find in Guinea-Bissau. There are the poor Cape Verdeans who have very strong connection with the people, uh, and then there are the, uh, the educated Cape Verdeans recruited uh, by the Portuguese in the colonial uh, service uh, who have to implement the colonial policies uh, of, uh, of the Portuguese. Um, the statistics are, uh, are, are very uh, clear. Um, at one point, you have over 60% of the colonial officials in, in, um, in Guinea-Bissau are, are Cape Verdeans. And, and that, that's problematic because Portuguese colonialism, uh, like all colonialism, was very harsh. But because Portugal was a dictatorship from 1926, um, it was already hard on the people of Portugal the regime in Portugal was harsh on the people of Portugal. We cannot expect it to be any less so in the colonies. And the people that are implementing those harsh uh, uh, measures in the colonies are mainly Cape Verdeans. Right. So uh, the Cape Verdean colonial uh, officials, because they are the ones in closest contact with the ordinary people. They are the ones that enforce that collect taxes, that enforced, you know, um, uh, forced labor, and all the has harsh measures. So yes, it it, it brings this, uh, uh, it exact actually exaggerates the uh, the antagonism 
between uh, Guineans and Cape Verdeans. And that will remain even after independence. Um, I'm sorry, um, I, I forgot the other point that you made, which was? Um, I, I, wanted, I wanted you now to um, contemporize that and bring it to, uh, to extrapolate it to all of Africa today where that might still seem to be the case. Well, actually, that, that, um, that antagonism um, would, be, would be reflected in the liberation movement. You have this liberation movement, the African Party of Independence uh, for Guinea, of Guinea and Cape Verde. All right. It is uh, uh, created uh, by Amilcar Cabral with uh, Guinean and Cape Verdean uh, nationalists. So it is a binational uh, liberation movement dedicated to liberating both countries. Okay, because again, Amilcar Cabral has this binationalism born in Guinea-Bissau of Cape Verdean uh, parents. Now. Um, that uh, that reality, this binationalism, um, uh, it becomes a problem in uh, during the War of Liberation. Uh, we see uh, you have a situation where the leadership of the PAIGC is Cape Verdean because Cape Verde was the main beneficiary of the little colonial education that was provided. So um, the, uh, the, may, the, the leaders of the PIG, the educated leaders of the PIGC, including Amilcar Cabral, was of Cape Verdean origins. And so um, at the same time, you have that antagonism because this, this is happening during the colonial period. You know, you have the uh, Cape Verdeans who are playing this very important role in maintaining the colonial status quo. And you have this nationalist organization that is led by Cape Verdeans. And, and, and uh, the frictions uh, are there. And so uh, the Portuguese are able to uh, exploit that. And that would lead to the assassination of Amilcar Cabral. And again, after independence, um, it's that difference plays out to the 1980 coup d'etat in which Amilcar Cabral's brother is overthrown and that would lead to the separation. The whole struggle was predicated on the unification of these two countries and they would separate with the 1980 coup. Okay, a little bit further. I think mm -hmm. this is my, my, my last question. Mm -hmm. No, it won't be quite. Um, the concept of class delineation that you speak about, I think it's in chapter five. The concept of what? Class delineation, class, okay. class struggle. Mm -hmm. um, while other African intellectuals and leaders, political leaders, liberation leaders like Sekuture, Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, had avoided in their, in, in their theorizations of African struggles, the concept of class being a foundational um, unit of organization. They argued more around uh, ethnic lines, religion, um, age even. Uh, Amilcar Cabral doesn't shy away from this. He says, yes, 
African societies have been um, class uh, have been stratified along class lines. Right. Then he says, in order for the for the for the liberation struggle to move, the middle class, the petite bourgeoisie, needs to commit class suicide. Mm-hmm. Could you please speak a bit more about that? Sure, and um, that is uh, part that partly explains the failure of this project. You know, committing class suicide means um, identifying with the cause. With the, with, the, with, with the cause of the liberation, with the, with the, the victims, you know, of, 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 uh, uh, of colonization itself. And so, um, yes, Cabral does not shy from Marx's analysis uh, of the situation. And so um, uh, we find um, he refers to class, uh, even though he, he does um, uh, question some aspects, as I mentioned earlier, of, uh, of, uh, of Marxism itself, of class struggle. Or, uh, but certainly um, in Guinea-Bissau, um, Cabral uh, uh, does emphasize that, um, that aspect of, of, of Marxism. Okay, thank you. I think we're going to move on to the uh, Q&A session uh-huh. of the presentation. Okay. Um, am I going to do it or is Dr. Johnson going to do it? Sorry, uh, Renee, I'm going to let you do this. Okay. okay. <laughs> do you, are you able to see the questions coming Yes, in I'm back? able to see them. I'm able okay. to see them. Um, there is someone who had asked on uh, the importance of um, um, departing from the need to uh, compare Cabral to other leaders, for example, Manza Musa or Che Guevara or Kwame Nkrumah. It would it be better to understand him if we just saw him as Amilka Cabral without comparing him to anybody else? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, I, I think that's a useful um, uh, thing to do. Um, he was... Uh, he was unique, but uh, invariably people tend to compare um, leaders uh, in order to bring out the uniqueness uh, about them. Um, I think it is in that sense that I, for example, uh, mentioned the difference between him and Che Guevara, for example. Um, also, um, someone was asking, it is very interesting how Cabral is viewed because the revolution was not only an intellectual one, as you mentioned, sure. but a political one as well. And, uh, and, and an armed one. Do you believe that it is a fact that it was so multidimensional that made it a bit more successful? Yes, I think uh, particularly the emphasis on culture. Um, yes, uh, because it was multi- multidimensional. It was not flag uh, independence. Um, yes, that is uh, what makes it um, um, that much more uh, important, a revolution. Um, there, was, there was a question as well about Amilcar's um, intellectual uh, corpus, uh, slants, mm-hmm. and their relationship to negritude, the movement of negritude. You had mentioned in the book about his uh, dalliances with the presence of Hekan, Aliun Diop, and the likes. 
please speak a bit more about that as well. I've had the pleasure to read the book. Everybody else hasn't. Yes, I think he uh, he saw the limitation of um, you know cultural uh, nationalism, and um, so he was more interested in total liberation. Um, so yes, he embraced uh, some aspects of you know negritude. Uh, he was definitely a Pan Africanist, but qualified his Pan Africanism. It's the Pan Africanism from bottom up rather than top down. It's a, it's about solidarity of the peoples um, rather than uh, you know uh, a club of uh, the elite or solidarity amongst the elite. Okay, I, I have to ask this question from Dr. Plummer. Um, would you please share your perspectives on Cabral's approach to cultural resistance and culture as a tool for resistance? Because you can't help but think of Cabral's understanding of the power of culture as a mobilizing tool, that that is a feature that we have seen in contemporary politics. And if I were just to add an addendum to that, you mentioned somewhere that he, he spoke about the literature and poetry of the age being resigned either to hopefulness or to pessimism, and that he saw that that would only lead to stagnation. So could you speak about culture and its optimism or pessimism and how it can be harnessed uh, in contemporary politics globally? Yeah, Cabral puts a lot of importance to culture, especially in a situation where you have the dominant colonial culture. So culture itself uh, is a weapon of liberation, you know, but uh, he makes a distinction between culture that actually oppresses the people and culture that is liberating. Culture is useful in the fight against foreign domination. Um, so uh, in that sense, uh, culture plays a very important role for Cabral. Okay. Uh-huh. How would you assess the overall success or failure of the revolution in Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde? Um, the revolution um, died with Cabral. Um, after Cabral, it was it became again the context here is very important. You know, Cabral is assassinated in 1973. Uh, nine months later, the country becomes independent. Now, um, it is at a time when there's also uh, economic crisis with the, um, you know, uh, the, the oil embargo that plunges the world, you know, into a recession. And so when you take the whole, uh, when you look at the whole pic- picture, um, it's, it's a difficult time for a newborn nation. Now, again, um, it questions the commitment of the leadership, the people that took over uh, from Amilcar Cabral. Amilcar Cabral was really this towering uh, figure that was clear about the objectives of the revolution. And with his death, um, the, uh, his uh, followers they are almost in disarray. 
you know, they uh, hurriedly gather together. Um, independence is declared. Uh, a new nation is uh, uh, comes into being, but it is struggling. And um, again, the ideological rivalry between East and West, the Cold War, uh, impacts um, the situation uh, in Guinea-Bissau as well as in other African countries. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, Guinea-Bissau was a country as it, when it was fighting for its independence. Uh, the Soviet Union played a very important part. The Eastern Bloc countries played a very important part. And so uh, with the end of the Cold War, uh, with the triumphalism uh, uh, that emerged with the West, particularly the United States, and the conditionalism that uh, attached Guinea-Bissau. It impacts the leaders of, uh, uh, of Guinea-Bissau as well as other uh, countries. But in the case of uh, uh, Guinea-Bissau, it, it, it is serious. And the, you find Cabral, the agenda is, is abandoned. Um, institutions like the World Bank, the IMF, they come out with uh, economic and political conditionalities, you know, to access, you know, development funds, and it has an impact. Okay, uh, Professor Lang Langria uh, has a question for you. Uh, I don't know if she... Professor Langmuir? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Yeah. All right. Um, I'm from Cameroon. Okay. Uh, I really want to thank you so much for this presentation. Thank because you. Because it has uh, made me to realize that the achievement of Cabral was also uh, something that we did not anticipate when we were fighting the French in Cameroon. Mm -hmm. The idea of also changing the minds of Portuguese in Portugal. This is really quite interesting. Mm -hmm. My worry is, why is now, I'm just asking this question now as a scholar who is looking at Africa, not only what Cabral did, because you said the revolution died with him. Presenting and writing a book like this in 2020 for young people in Africa, for people now to see that these guys fought the war of liberation, but we are still incarcerated, mentally speaking. Mm -hmm. And the revolution died with him. As I'm speaking with you, Bobby Wine has been arrested in Uganda. Yes. Okay. Patrick Lumumba started something like that, but he was killed in Zaire. Mm -hmm. Walter Rodney started something like that. He was killed and it all went with it. Where is the future? I am saying this again because in Cameroon right now, those revolutionary leaders that want to follow the footsteps of Cabral, are being killed by French forces from France, and so we, they have not succeeded to change the French mind. The same thing in Cote d'Ivoire. Yes. So we are still incarcerated in Africa. These leaders came and went, but we are still mentally incarcerated. We call ourselves Pan-Africanists, but the continent now is channelization. <laughs> it's now channel. I, I want you as an author to give us some limelight using the footprint of Cabral to see where is the future for us. It's good to publish the book we read, but we need to see where we are getting to 
with this continent that we love so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think that's a very important point. Um, I think no matter how difficult the situation is, and no doubt um, hopelessness, the sense of hopelessness fills most of us, but um, the inspiration is there, uh, and we cannot lose hope. Uh, We have inspirational leaders in the past. You've mentioned them. Cabral, of course, is one of them. Patrice Lumumba, Kwame Nkrumah. You know, their, their ideas must, must be kept alive. Um, and so uh, no matter how long it takes, a generation will emerge that will um, carry the struggle. Um, I'm, I'm a, a born optimist. I think, um, yes, um, the situation is really critical has been critical for a long time, but I think progressive forces cannot just, you know, um, give up. Um, the struggle continues. I mean, as I know that sounds like a cliche, but we, we, uh, we do have the inspiration is there. Cabral, um, Kwame Nkrumah, Patrice Lumumba, uh, they provide the inspiration. They are our source of inspiration. Um, I'm just I'm just going to go back to uh, Dr. Cham's question because now that you brought up the issue of a cultural regeneration uh, as as an inspiration for, um, I'm just going to read it out again. Uh, you focus on Cabral's concepts and practices of culture, which he privileges in any process of liberation, brings interesting new perspectives on dominant accounts of African literary and cultural history. The accounts of the thoughts and practices of those who congregated around the Claridade, Cabo Verdeanidade, such as the movements bring to mind similar trends in negritude and similar ideologies of, of culture. So what exactly were his views of, of negritude and as um, Dr. Langley just asked, how the dignification of Africans can change the minds of Portugal, France, and China, in a sense. Yeah, I think uh, with Claridad, um, for example, um, uh, Cabral saw their value, I mean, um, but he also saw their limitation. Um, and he pointed out those limitations. And it's, it's, it's okay, uh, the cultural nationalism is okay, uh, but it's, 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 it's not enough. All right. Um, so, yeah, uh, culture is very important, um, but it also has to be accompanied with political action. Um, and it's got to be liberating. Thank you. Uh, there's a question from Amadou Guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, um, good evening, Prof. Mendy. Good evening. We, uh, we are very proud of you as a Gambian, um, you know, um, having this expertise on one of the most important figures, historical figures of our continent, and 
having been so eloquently um, discussed um, about Amilcar Cabral and his history and the legacy that he's left behind. So we thank you so much, uh, Prof. Mendy, for we, I haven't yet um, grabbed a copy of your book, but I'm looking forward to doing so. And I'm sure a lot of our Gambian compatriots here in, and in the diaspora, as well as other Africans, of course, um, will be very much interested uh, to review it. So we thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. We are proud of you. Thank you. Um, I just have two, maybe um, um, two questions or commentary um, to this brilliant topic that you've um, very competently addressed so far. Um, one is, um, you mentioned about um, the, you know, the, the, the demise of the, the struggle that Amilcar Cabral was waging after his death, leading even to the separation of, um, you know, Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde. He was trying to, to, to bring them together, and even he was looking forward towards a greater Pan-African unity. Mm -hmm. um, what lessons, are there any lessons that we can draw from that? Uh, so that in the demise of such a towering leader, as you called him, um, leading very competently for a very long time, that the, the, um, the struggle that he left behind, he, well, he didn't own it, he wanted to free his people, sure. and that it doesn't suffer but can continue and be sustained. Yeah. Uh, my first question is, are there lessons that we can learn? And the second one, and final one, of course, is um, looking forward. <laughs> Africa, it, it looks like Africa hasn't moved anywhere um, in terms of progress since Cabral's demise. Uh, we're still under the tutelage and control of, of imperialism. Um, we're still um, largely economic, economically and financially not sovereign in any way mm -hmm. in order to, to be able to determine um, the policies, the, the finance, the capital, the foreign affairs, foreign policy, and, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. We still cannot control any of that. Mm -hmm. And you've mentioned that Amilcar Cabral was very much a Pan-Africanist who was looking forward not just to uniting Everett and, and Guinea-Bissau, but, you know, the whole African continent. So today... Given even the example of Guinea-Bissau and, and, and uh, Cape Verde, not being able to move out of, this, of these shackles and be fully sovereign, because probably because they're, they're small, they're tiny, they're, they're isolated, you know, I mean, with regard to the large African continent. Do you think that it's, it's important now for us to chart a new Pan-African agenda that Cabral was looking for. He did not reach there, but we all know that he was. He was involved in the, in the struggle continentally, not just in, in the other Portuguese colonies, but working very much, very closely in solidarity with uh, all the other um, progressive um, revolutionary leaders of Africa. So we know what his goal was. What should we do today to revive, I mean, these legacies of Cabral, these ideas, and make sure that Africa becomes free, completely 
liberated and be able to chart our own destiny, having attained our full sovereignty. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, uh, I think you've asked some very, very um, profound questions. Let me take your last question first. Um, the dependency of Africa, the continued um, you know, the deteriorating conditions in Africa, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, very important. It's very serious. Um, the, um, what needs to be done, uh, in my opinion, I think, is to continue to, um, you know, to divulge to spread the ideas of these progressive African leaders that we have, people like uh, uh, Cabral and Kwame Nkrumah. Um, it's a challenging time um, uh, for progressive elements around the world. And so um, it's... Uh, it's it's not time we cannot afford progressive forces cannot afford to give up uh in the face of this seemingly overwhelming you know all powerful uh forces so it's it's the old cliche a luta continua the struggle continues so cabral um uh, his example is is inspirational uh, he was not only concerned with uh, the Portuguese colonies, he played a very important role uh, not only in Guinea-Bissau and, uh, and Cabo Verde, but uh, particularly he was a founding member of the um, MPLA. Uh, he worked very closely. In fact, he was the, the face and voice of the, the, the movement um, in the Portuguese colonies. But he was also in solidarity with all the other progressive forces. You know, uh, he was close to Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, they had a very um, close relationship. So it's, um, uh, it's just, it's about not losing the message. It's about keeping the fight. Um, no matter how difficult, uh, you know, uh, the going gets. So, um, that's uh, that's my take on that uh, second question. Uh, now, the first one, um, uh, the lessons. If I um, if I get that right, uh, the lessons to be learned. Would you mind just repeating that again? The first uh, the first question. Um, yes, uh, the, the first one was, uh, you know, just to ask what lessons may be learned from the. Um, yeah. You know, the, the, the scenario in Guinea-Bissau where a, a towering leader as Cabral, um, you know, died and right. then the struggle suffered and could not continue. Right. Yeah. Um, the lessons to be learned uh, is the, first of all, I think the, the degree of politicization, the involvement of, of, the, of the people at the grassroots level. You know, Cabral put a lot of emphasis on uh, on on political education, you know, and when he were, when he died, one of the casualties of that uh, in the schools, 
they used to have a discipline called uh, political militancy. You know, they don't have that anymore. Um, in the in the schools, very little is taught about Cabral and his ideas. So it's about, um, you know, keeping these ideas alive. You know, these are liberating ideas that must be kept alive. But um, it, it, it has to be grassroots, you know, because uh, top-down uh, history has shown that it's not sustainable. It's got to have roots. It's got to be firmly based, you know. So um, I think that is um, what is missing. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I'm gonna, I was going to add, and mm-hmm. that has to be done in solidarity. Mm-hmm. We cannot see borders in Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is happening in Guinea-Bissau uh, must have, you know, must be connected, must connect to what is happening in, in, in Ghana and Zimbabwe and, you know, uh, Botswana, you know, and South Africa. Uh, so uh, that spirit of pan-Africanism has to be kept alive because Cabral was a nationalist, but also a pan-Africanist. He saw the total picture, you know, because focusing on just one part of Africa is, is, is part of the problem. So what we have today as the African Union, um, we see where we're going with that. Um, yeah, if I may just add a little bit there with the permission of the host and yourself. Um, uh, this is very interesting. I, yeah, thank you. Oh, it was just a short one, very short. I'm trying to save time for Dr. Cham. Before we run out of time. Okay, can I come with that after Dr. Cham's presentation then? If we have time. So this was about the way forward. All right, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Cham, please. <laughs> Okay, thank you, Rene. Thank you, Peter. That was really wonderful. Uh, I just want to follow up on uh, some of uh, the remarks that uh, were made earlier, uh, especially by my compatriot, uh, Cyber Suso, who uh, <clears throat> asks, uh, how do we explain this series of political instability that has followed uh, the independence in Guinea-Bissau since independence, you know. And I want to tie that up to um, <clears throat> uh, the fact that, I mean, if you look at Cabo Verde, you have uh, one of the compatriots of Cabral, Pedro Pires, you know, who emerged as um, uh, a leader in uh, Cabo Verde uh, and, and ran things to the point where um, his performance was really celebrated with uh, this Mo Ibrahim Prize, you know, which is really one of those top prizes that um, uh, exist in Africa, given by Africans based on a number of criteria there. So one can think uh, in terms of uh, a relative success in uh, Cabo Verde, as opposed to, and stability, so to speak, as opposed to what uh, we see unfolding in uh, Guinea-Bissau over the past 20 years or so. So I want to ask if um, one might, uh, I mean, how how would you explain these divergent uh, fortunes of Cabo Verde and and, and Guinea-Bissau, you know, uh, over the past uh, 
uh, 20 years or so. And would you say that um, perhaps through people like Piresh, you know, some of the ideals of Cabral that died in Guinea-Bissau were sort of uh, um, continued, that they had a staying power in Cabo Verde, which to some extent might uh, um, account for the relative success um, uh, in in, in Cabo Verde as opposed to uh, in Guinea-Bissau. I don't know what your thoughts are there. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Cham. Um, I think those are uh, very important uh, points. Um, um, in Guinea-Bissau, uh, the situation, uh, in spite of the similarities, uh, was different. Guinea-Bissau was the core of this struggle for liberation. And um, Cape Verdeans were involved, but again, as I explained earlier, the position of Cape Verdeans uh, as uh, colonial uh, uh, functionaries uh, made it very difficult. Uh, And Cabral really was this charismatic figure that was able to bridge that that gap. All right, he was also uh, uh, suspected. You know, um, and um, he had uh, a lot of pressure problems in trying to mobilize. So he was trying to keep, if you like, this contain this antagonism between uh, Guineans and Cape Verdeans. And it's not surprised that after his death, you know, the thing um, uh, explodes uh, out of control. Um, so. Um, in Cape Verde, too, there was a, a, a resistance to um, the idea of, uh, you know, unification uh, with uh, uh, with Guinea-Bissau. Um, the PAIGC uh, was able to establish control uh, in uh, in Cabo Verde. Uh, it met resistance. Um, not as uh, uh, as strong um, as in, in Guinea-Bissau, where you had, you know, uh, a political uh, opposition. It turned out to be ineffective in the end. This is the um, fling, uh, the front for the liberation of, of Guinea. Uh, but it became a spent force um, by the end of the, the war. So, um, uh, Cape Verde is a, uh, is a more cohesive uh, society. Um, you don't have the, the antagonisms, the divisions, you know, um, that you had in Guinea-Bissau. Um, over 30 different ethnic groups, um, where, which the Portuguese exploited uh, during their time there, um, setting one ethnic group against the other. And then on top of that, you have the Cape Verdeans that were brought in and, you know, given uh, as uh, uh, given special privileges as uh, colonial officials. So um, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. Uh, it was relatively easy for Cape Verdeans. They don't have ethnic divisions, 
And they, for a long time, had this strong sense of Kibbutzianness, you know, which uh, enabled them to, in spite of their differences, uh, which never exploded into war, um, to um, get things done. So uh, for the first um, 75 to the 1990s, you know, um, uh, the PAIG, the PAIGC uh, was able to keep things under control. Uh, you know, and then in 1980, of course, it becomes the PAICV, a continuation of the PAIGC. But they were, they had uh, uh, mass support um, because they didn't have the ethnic divisions. Yet yeah, there's some regionalism between the islands. But uh, their sense of Kibbutzianness was much, much stronger than you had in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, keep in mind that Guinea-Bissau was not conquered by the Portuguese until the mainland was conquered in 1915 and the adjacent islands in 1936. So effective Portuguese domination uh, of uh, Guinea-Bissau was was very short-lived. Yeah. And so um, it's a different situation. This sense of Guinean-ness uh, uh, is, is much weaker than the sense of Kivudian-ness. In spite of their differences that varied from island to island, they had a much stronger sense of what what is called Kivudianidad or Kivudian-ness. So... Um, that made it easier for things um, to develop in spite of the opposition, the PAIGC, Pedro Pires, I mean, they were voted out of power in 1991. You know, and then they had to uh, struggle to come back. And it was when Pedro Pires, as president, um, was able you know, um, to... Uh, make pro- progress and won and, and won this uh, uh, prize, the Mo Abraham uh, Prize. So um, the differences between the two countries is very important. Multi-ethnic, um, the divisions that had been you know exploited during the colonial period by the post- Portuguese, you did not have that in Cape Verde. So that's a very important difference why the Cape Verdeans were much more, uh, they were able to make uh, more progress because they were, they are a more unified people in spite of the regional, the differences between the islands than you had in Guinea-Bissau. Um, okay. um, I think we'll just move to uh, Dr. Mendy, your last word because we are out of time for the question and answer and then I'll leave it over to Dr. Johnson to summarize it. So in like uh, five to five minutes your final word and then Dr. Johnson will cover it. Uh, okay. Uh, so um, the uh, project uh, failed in Guinea-Bissau. The unification project failed and Guinea-Bissau uh, with the coup in 1980, the separation between Cabo Verde, uh, Cape Verde and, and Guinea-Bissau. And then um, the country 
now it goes through very, very difficult time uh, economically and politically. The 1990s, you know, um, with 1994, multipartyism is imposed from uh, outside the uh, uh, conditionalities of the World Bank. And so now you have multi-party politics, but um, it's not democracy. You know, um, Guinea-Bissau goes through a very turbulent period uh, until 2014, until 2014. So from 1994 until 2014, there was not one government or a president that finished, that completed its constitutional term in office. It became a very turbulent, a very unstable um, country. And the country is still going through um, political instability. Professor Mendy, thank you very much. I'm sorry, I'm just moving to another room. There was too much noise there. I want to thank you um, for your for this wonderful talk. I I I don't know if you've been seeing all of the the conversations in the chat. I think we captured much of what um, was being said, but there was there was a rich discussion. Obviously, you have sparked a lot of interest. Um, understandably so, right? I think it's really quite interesting to see how people are looking to the past mm-hmm. to 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 provide us with some hope and some direction for for the future. And certainly, as you yourself have said, Amilcar Cabral is certainly one of those figures that we should look to and whose who's, who's teachings, whose uh, who's, uh, books and whose lessons really can, can provide certain seeds for understanding what directions we need to move in in the future. So uh, we really want to thank you again for, for coming to speak with us here at the center. Um, I know everyone has enjoyed the discussion, and I hope that once we, we do get out of this COVID era that we're in, we can actually physically bring you to um, to Howard and to the center. It's really always a pleasure to um, engage, especially in, in uh, with Lucifone Africa. We 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 uh, we. I don't know if you you must have known our good um, Professor Luis Serapiao in our department who retired a few years ago and so then since then it feels like we have a bit of a void in our in our department and in our program from the lucifone uh, angle so it would be very nice to 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 bring you back again to 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 bring that element into our discussion so again i want to thank you very much for joining you and uh, joining us this evening and thank everyone else as well for for coming the the this um, session has been recorded and it will be it will be um, posted on our web page. This is also um, International Education Week, and um, m- many of the Howard faculty and Africanist faculty in general are engaged in the African Studies Association meeting, which starts tomorrow. So there's a lot of activity going on. Please do check us out on social media and Facebook, Twitter, and on our web page to see about our upcoming events. And if you don't receive our newsletter, which has a lot of information on it with regards to our programming, please go to the web page and sign up for our newsletter as well. Professor Mendy, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you for inviting me. 
I am familiar with uh, uh, with uh, with your institution. Um, I I was an external examiner, and I actually stayed uh, with Professor Lewis. Uh, oh know, yes. Uh, yes. So I know him quite well. <laughs> and, and of course, um, uh, my compatriot, uh, um, uh, Dr. May. Yes. So um, I do. Um, I, I would definitely. I look forward to coming back to Howard, and thank thank you for inviting me um, and giving me this opportunity, you know, to talk about my book. Thank you very Wonderful. much. Wonderful. Thank yeah. you. And we did also put the link to the Amazon page where you could. His, the the book is uh, very available, and so there's a link actually to where you can purchase it on on uh, Amazon.com, yeah. and encourage everyone to go out out, out and read it. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, that was a detailed discussion on the lifetimes and contributions of Emil Cabral, uh, the founder and leader of the national liberation struggle in uh, Cape Verde and Guinea-Bissau. Are you listening to the Pan-African Journal? special worldwide radio broadcast for Sunday, May 28th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And this uh, has been uh, the week of African Liberation Day, uh, the 60th anniversary of the formation of the OAU, now the AU. We'll take a break where we'll be back with our concluded segment uh, for the Pan-African Journal.
Welcome back. Uh, that was Detroit's own Anita Baker with the track entitled Rules. And our final segment uh, is an interview uh, with State of Eritrea President uh, Isaiah Afwerki. Uh, this is uh, after Liberation Day. We're at the 60th anniversary of the OAU uh, slash AU. And, of course, uh, Eritrea uh, won its independence as a result of a 30-year armed struggle uh, that culminated in 1991, and it was recognized by the uh, former Organization of African Unity and the United Nations in 1993 after a U.N.-sponsored referendum. Let's listen to this interview uh, with uh, President Afwerki of Eritrea. He opposes external interference and condemns sanctions imposed under hegemonism. He applauds China's achievements as an inspiration to developing countries and expects China-Africa cooperation to accelerate Africa's development. In this episode of Leaders Talk, we have an exclusive interview with Eritrean President Isaiah Afwerki in Beijing during his state visit to China. Welcome to Leaders Talk, where we meet leaders, thinkers, and trailblazers. I'm Zhou Yun. Our guest today is President of Eritrea, Mr. Isaias Afwerki. This year marks the 30th anniversary of diplomatic relations between China and Eritrea. As a longtime friend of China, how does he see this fellow relations moving forward? How does he understand the regional as well as international contest? And what is vision on the new chapter of China-Africa Cooperation? Today, we are going to find those answers from an interview with President of Eritrea. Mr. President, thank you so much for joining us today on Leaders Talk. Well, one of the highlights of your visit this time to China is meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping yesterday. So what are the major takeaways from this meeting? I think we can look at it from a broader context. And the broader context is the relationship between China and Eritrea. And uh, it has developed to a strategic partnership on a number of issues. My meeting with President Xi Jinping is a continuation of that long-standing history of partnership, Mm -hmm. strategic partnership with China. Mm -hmm. Mr. President, this year marks the uh, 30th anniversary of diplomatic relations between China and Eritrea. And during your meeting with Chinese President Xi Jinping, he quoted a Chinese proverb, San Li, which means at the age of 30, one planted his or her feet firm upon the ground. So for you, how would you define this bilateral relations, and how do you think we can not only enhance the uh, traditional political friendship, but also inject new impetus into the economic cooperation between the two sides? From our perspective, it's a, a historic mission of humanity why the People's Republic of China stood on the right of the Eritrean people to independence immediately after independence 1949 Mm -hmm. is historic. Independence of nations and peoples, Mm -hmm. which is the foundation of any cooperation program, economic or otherwise, that is the foundation of the relationship. Now it's not only Eritrea and China, but we work together to influence the emergence of a new global order, which is again a mission for humanity. 
and China still stands on the side of the peoples of the world, Eritrea, in solidarity with China, continues to uphold a mission for humanity. Located in the Horn of Africa, the East African nation Eritrea shares a land border with Sudan, Ethiopia, and Djibouti, and a maritime border with Saudi Arabia and Yemen. Known as the Pearl of the Red Sea because of its spectacular landscape and colorful culture, Eritrea is a gateway to both Africa and Asia and was an important hub on the ancient maritime Silk Road. The China-Eritrea friendship has stood the test of time, with the two nations always supporting each other. In 2022, President Xi Jinping and President Isaias agreed to upgrade the China-Eritrea relationship to a strategic partnership. The two countries are in close communication and coordination on international and regional affairs, and the deepened political mutual trust has seen fruitful results through pragmatic cooperation. Over the past decades, both countries have uh, stood the test of time and have shared will and vote. In the very recent conflict in Sudan, uh, Eritrean government has provided assistance to the uh, evacuation and transfer of Chinese citizens. And at the same time, Chinese people have also helped Eritrean citizens to evacuate from Sudan. So what is your take on uh, this evacuation and how do you see this mutual cooperation between the two sides in the face of crisis? Conflict erupted. It was out of the question that we need to have arrangements on doing this job. It's, it's our commitment to our common cause to work together. And in difficult times, like this sad situation we have in the Sudan, the cooperation between Eritrea and China is a natural phenomenon. I mean, Chinese in Eritrea or Chinese crossing from the Sudanese border to Eritrea have all the right to be supported. And Eritrea did its obligation in providing the support required by Chinese citizens who were trapped in the conflict in the Sudan. And similarly, China would do the same thing to uphold its moral obligation to support people under distress. Conflict situations definitely require a moral commitment of everybody. Humanitarily support citizens of one or another nation held or trapped in a situation like the one we have in the Sudan, which is very sad again. Mm -hmm. Mr. President, in a very recent televised speech, you have announced the opening of the Eritrean border to refugees who are fleeing from Sudan during this conflict. What is the rationale behind such a decision? This is a humanitarian case. This is a humanitarian situation. You don't need to be obliged. You need to be reminded by anybody to provide any support that is required of you. And no visas, no permissions, anyone willing to cross the border to Eritrea can freely or safely imagine that everything is open for the, the travel, saving human lives, saving people from a situation like the one in the Sudan. Mr. President, let's get back to this uh, profound relationship between China and Eritrea because over the past years we have saw so many memorable testaments of uh, this uh, solid foundation between the two countries. I remember in 2008 during the Wenchuan earthquake. At that time, I was very young, but I remember vividly, you know, at that time, both you, Mr. President, and also your people has made donations to the people in the earthquake and also have um, expressed your willingness to help to tide over these difficulties together with the Chinese people. How do you see this mutual um, support, mutual assistance between the people? 
of both countries? It's simply a convergence of values, value systems mm -hmm. of communities, nations, peoples are what bring people together. Mm -hmm. We would like to see humanity move towards fair and justice for a situation of justice. These values are what bring people together. It's not only China and Eritrea, but people everywhere in the world, Latin America, Asia, Europe, the Americas. We need a new world order. What China has achieved, not only domestically, but globally, makes a lot of sense to many people across the world. And we need to work in solidarity to make more contributions for the future of humanity. We are not in the Sun Age. We are not in the Middle Age. We are moving ahead towards a new century, a new era for humanity. Mm -hmm. And complementarity and cooperation is the name of the game. Right. No one nation, no one people will survive without complementarity and without solidarity. What China has done, what China has contributed to the, to, 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 to the global transformation mm -hmm. is, is, is based on this uh, concept of solidarity. Mr. President, those voices who are now seeing China's rights as a threat, not as an opportunity, how do you see those moves to contain China? In history and say, the imbalances globally, conflicts here and there, world wars, and continuous confrontations have been the philosophies of many minorities who have tried to dominate. It's hegemonistic. It's dominating as an attitude to uh, suppress peoples and nations and finally control or dominate global economy has been a misguided policy. It's a mis misconception of realities. It's misunderstanding of history. Now we see the future is very bright. The future is very bright because of Chinese achievement. China has proven to everybody in the world, the marginalized and those who entertain the ideas of, of, of domination, this is no more the rule of the game. People of the world will have to cooperate. The new world order is an order of cooperation, complementarity, and working together. It's not a world order for domination or hegemony. Well, during the meeting yesterday, President Xi has said that uh, Africa is a very promising land. And he also emphasizes that given the current uh, circumstances, it is more imperative than never for China and Africa to enhance solidarity as well as cooperation. So, Mr. President, as the head of an African country, how do you think we can bring the Zabala relations between China and Africa to an even higher level? That's one critical challenge we see today. In spite of all the achievements, in spite of so many things happening globally, Africa remains to be a marginalized continent. Marginalized continent because of its economies. It, it's a subsistence economy. It's a very backward economy. You talk, you hear about famine here, famine there, conflict here, conflict there. All sorts of, of bad things are there. Now, Africa needs to be extricated from this state of affair. How can Africa do it? It's the responsibility of the people in Africa. But definitely, Chinese contributions are very significant. For Africa to extricate itself, what China has done the last few decades in transforming the reality of Africa is, a, is only a beginning. And hopefully, mm -hmm. the solidarity between China and Africa will create a synergy that will accelerate the process of extricating Africa from marginalization.
Mr. President, in 2021, Eritrea signed a uh, MOU with uh, China on Belt and Road Initiative. Well, this initiative was proposed by China, but the uh, benefits have been shared by the world. But at the same time, I think you've heard some of the different voices, especially from uh, Western media, which accuse China of spreading the so-called debt trap. So what's your response to these claims, and how do you understand the Belt and Road Initiative? If there is any debt trap, it's the responsibility of those nations in Africa who have mismanaged their economies. You can't go back and blame China for any uh, mishap. If you are planning an economy, if you have resources to mobilize, if you have goals to achieve in any area, in any sector, definitely you have to have the correct policies and you have to have the, the, the institutional mechanism to implement this. China would be willing to support and help allow governments to borrow money, but ultimately the management issue falls on the responsibility of the African side. Now, blaming China for debt traps is simply defaming the, the, the achievement and probably trying to create some risk between African and, and Chinese uh, contributions in the solidarity that has achieved the, the economic development we see today. One of the worrying things for these hegemonistic forces globally is China working with Africa to extricate Africa from the marginalization that it exists today and move forward in solidarity with the peoples of Africa. If there are mistakes done by African government, their trust will have to be managed by learning from mistakes and correcting the handling of, of, of the economies that have failed into this trap. Mr. President, Eritrea is heavily sanctioned by the United States and some other countries. What do you think are the implications of those uh, sanctions? And now it seems there's a tendency for some countries to label some developing countries as um, undemocratic and then use them as excuses to impose sanctions. How would you respond to that? It's the sick mind of uh, hegemonistic powers. It's sick because why impose sanctions? What is the legality of imposing any sanction? What is the morality of imposing any sanction on any nation? It's, uh, it's, it's a big question mark. It's not only sanctioning Eritrea, but sanctioning all those who uphold their independence and sovereignty. If they don't like you, they will impose sanctions. They will try to cripple your economies. They will try to incite conflict. They will try to destabilize and interfere. And they have no moral or legal high ground to come and intervene or even impose sanctions on any nation. Eritrea has been a victim of this because for the last 80 years they have had their own fancy ideas about dominating Africa by regionalizing Africa into influence or centers of influence. And everyone who disagrees with their philosophy and their sick mind will have to be punished, punished and punished and punished, demonized, demonized, impose sanctions. We're fed up of this stupid idea of imposing your will on others sovereign and independent choice and trying to keep their economies and try to create disrupt and the, the, the disruptions here and there. One of the reasons for trying to create a rift between China and Africa is to promote their own agenda of dominance mm -hmm. and anyone who disagrees with them will have to be punished. For us, been a longer experience we've been able to face this challenge and in solidarity with our partners in Africa, with China, Asia, 
Europe, Americas, definitely this defunct idea to me will be history no matter of one decade. Mr. President, give us an idea about what kind of impact has those sanctions made on the development of your country and also the livelihood of your people. It's not deniable. It does disrupt economic development here or there. It cripples uh, abilities here and there. But that's one of the challenges. It's an uphill struggle. You can't build a nation in a very smooth uh, manner without their disruptions. Imagine the history of, 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 the, of the Chinese people, where from they have come and where they are now and where they are going. The same thing for, for, for Africa. A major challenge for, for, for liberation of peoples, independence of nations, and ultimately economic development to change the qualities of life of them cannot happen without challenge. The damage done to our economy through these sanctions have been tremendous, but we say we have learned our lesson. It has made us more resilient and more uh, determined to continue our uh, struggle, endeavor to change the quality of life by improving our economy. The problem here is many Western countries, the states and also other countries, they're taking sanctions as a kind of solution to resolve, um, you know, crises and issues. Uh, the, the advantage of that uh, uh, attitude, that sick attitude, is it has inspired people more uh, committed to, 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 to liberation, independence. So, I think you are a believer of um, what doesn't destroy you, only make you stronger. Right. It does, it does. I'd like to, 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 to see everyone making these contributions in life. Your aspirations, your goodwill is your own uh, emotional uh, resource. Mm -hmm. But the fact that someone is coming and bullying you, someone is harassing you, someone is putting functions on you, he's, he's training you. It's a matter of getting the training in a negative manner. Ultimately, you become a full person. It's a learning uh, experience for someone to go through these experiences. And you can't thank them definitely for their ugly uh, attitudes, but definitely you have learned your lesson by going through the process of facing the challenge created by this dominating for some. You have both sides of the coin. You have to see the advantage and the disadvantage. I could have done better without that, but I have learned a lot by their bullying attitudes and their functions that have crippled my ability to move forward. Mr. President, you share a very special bond with China because about 15 years ago, you spent two years studying here in the country. And I read from a book which depicted you as a 21-year-old uh, young man, very tall, who doesn't talk much, kind of shy, but who studies very hard and think very actively. So how do you think that experience has um, influenced you? And uh, is there any interesting or impressive stories that you can share with us? It was a moment where a young man of 20 could have learned so many things in a very short period of time. And that has shaped lives, my life, the lives of the colleagues who were with me. It was the foundation of the, 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 the relationship. Mr. President, you just said you learned a lot from here. What would be the biggest lesson that you learned from here that still have an impact when governing your country today? It's a commitment to the people now. You can go and listen to President Xi Jinping, listen to Chinese leaders here and there. It's their commitment to their people. 
they have committed their lives to change the quality of life of their people. And the achievement they have done has been tremendous. You see that commitment is what has made China happen in any manner. Because the commitment of the people, the leadership level, the commitment of the Communist Party to change the quality of life here, the awareness of the Chinese people to change their reality to where they are now, is a model for success everywhere, Africa, Asia, Latin America, Europe, America. So it is really the, the outcome, the value system that was there, that motivated young people and many everywhere in the world, is what values my, my, my presence here in China. Well, speaking of the uh, motivation of young people, Mr. President, we heard that you once took not only your own kids, but also uh, many teenagers uh, in Eritrea to visit events at the uh, Chinese embassy in Eritrea. So why is that? And especially why do you think it is important for young people to gain an understanding and knowledge of China at an early age? If you have a value system, if this value system is appreciated, goals that will have to be achieved for the sake of humanity, how do you cultivate? Early age is the secret. I call it the, the, the motor for the survival and the movement of nations. Educate every young person to commit himself to the quality of life or the quality of life of, of, of the people. Commitment to those values is critical to any developmental issue that may arise when a young man or a young woman in one nation grow up with that motivation. Motivation is very critical. How do you see the path of China's uh, modernization? The achievement in China have proven that uh, the modernization and industrialization of China has been the secret of what we see today happen. What that sends as a message, it's a model for other continents and other peoples to see to China as a model. How has China achieved this? This underdeveloped country, this country that was considered to be backward by all standards in the era after the Second World War, now go back and see what has happened. Why has this modernization and industrialization of China transformed lives? Why is China now engaged in even transforming the global order? It's inspiring to see the achievements of China. It's inspiring particularly for the people in Africa. They can learn a lot from this experience. Well, apart from the cooperation in sectors including agriculture, infrastructure, mineral mining, etc., you know, the cooperation in cultural and people-to-people uh, -people exchanges are also gaining momentum between the two countries. And that's exciting to you as well, right, Mr. President? It's very comprehensive. It's comprehensive. It, it may involve a number of uh, economic sectors infrastructure, energy, water resource, agriculture, tourism, sectors, industries will have to be developed. But again, the solidarity will have to include the soft the soft power. Aspect, the soft yeah. power. The soft power exactly. is For the, cultural exchange, the cultural exchange is very critical. Now, it's not only a matter of solidarity working together on economic sectors, developmental programs here and there, but the cultural exchange of, of peoples everywhere is very critical. Mm -hmm. You share and ap appreciate values. Sharing and appreciating values gives you more strength. It multiplies your, your capability of doing things. You have to communicate. You have to tell each other mm -hmm. stories. You have to find and share values. 
speaking of uh, culture, Mr. President, you have a very um, you know in-depth and comprehensive knowledge of uh, Chinese culture and history. So, is there some special you would like to share with us? I modestly say I know very little, even though I am eager to know more about this culture. And there is no end, there is no limit to what you can learn from this culture. It's 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 a uh, it's the achievement of generations, a generations of thousands of years. Have you been to the goal, to the Great Wall of China? Mm -hmm. uh, go and see that achievement. Go and see every stone, every piece of stone, image carved on stone. Go and see the achievements of Chinese art. Go and see the achievements of Chinese the history and culture. There are so many things to learn from the Chinese history, from Chinese civilization, and modern achievements of China. Mr. President, you first came to China. Uh, when you were very young, in your 20s, and then afterwards you have also visited China a couple of times, and now this time again. So what are some of the major changes that you have witnessed with your own eyes? My yardstick is uh, see, uh, even from very far away, following the developments in China. I've been here last probably. Welcome back. And that was an extensive interview uh, with... Uh, State of Eritrea President uh, Isaiah Sapworki uh, during his visit uh, to the People's Republic of China, uh, being interviewed by the China Global Television Network. And that's going to uh, conclude our program for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for uh, Sunday May the 28th, uh, 2023, and uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. And I would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, to another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to uh, have access to this program, just go to our website at uh, the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We'll close out uh, with the historic performance uh, by Archie Shep live at the Pan-African Cultural Festival. Uh, from uh, 1969 in Algeria. This is Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week. We are still black and we have come back. New song, Revenue. We have come back and brought back to our land, Africa, the music of Africa. Jazz is a black power. Jazz is a black power. Jazz is a African power. Jazz is an African music. Jazz is an African music. We have come back.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.